Well, good morning, CVC family. How are you doing this morning? Man, it is so good to see you guys. So good to be back. Thank you for that. Hello to our online guests. I know you guys are watching. If you're new or newer, you're like, what's the big deal? Uh, my name is Chad Allen. I'm lead pastor here at CVC, and I've been out for the last two months uh, recovering from neck surgery. Um, uh, yeah, you can say I have a pain in the neck in my house, but I'm not going to list their name. Um, it's a joke. But anyways, uh, it's, it's good to be back. You're in trouble. I haven't taught in two months. This is my first time back since Christmas Eve. I like to talk fast, and I like to talk a lot, so Lord have mercy on you today, because it's been two months. But uh, I am looking forward to spending some time talking with you, and, and uh, if you're a guest, uh, this is going to be a neat time for you to be here, because uh, this won't be our kind of standard teaching time. We'll definitely get into God's Word, which is usual for us, but I really want to take uh, the opportunity to just download what God's been doing in my heart uh, as related to our church, as far as uh, looking back, I, I want to tie into what we've been talking about the last seven weeks through the Recalibrate series, through the seven letters of Revelation. But I also want to look forward to where I believe God's calling us to go as a church in the months and years ahead. And the number one factor, the number one component that we need to rally around to continue to be faithful to who God's called us to be and where God's calling us to go. And so if you're a guest, checking out churches, thinking about churches. One of the most important elements for you to really find a church home is to feel a heart connect with the mission and vision of that church. And so you'll get to hear a little bit more about that today on the front end, which hopefully will encourage you. And for the rest of us to call CVC home, it should be a good reminder, a good refresher of who God's called us to be and what he's called us to do. Now, the way we articulate our mission statement is to invite people to new life in Christ. Uh, we're always inviting people to new life in Christ. You think about Jesus as he walked this earth in his ministry, he was always inviting people to follow him. And so we just continue as followers of Christ to extend his invitation on his behalf, knowing that when we come to Christ, we experience transformation in our life, new life, and it can only happen through this relationship with Jesus. And so that's our heart connect and I want to start today by taking us to a portion of Scripture that is a strong connect for us as a church. We've been in this uh, passage before. We've taught through this book before. But I want to invite you to the book of Isaiah, chapter 61. And we're just going to look at the first four verses to start our morning off. And the reason this passage is so important to us is because it really taps into God's heart as one who redeems and restores and brings newness, who truly does bring uh, beauty from ashes, who, who makes us new like we just sang. Praise God that we have a God who takes dust and can make beautiful things out of us and says, you, you know, you take us and make it beautiful. We're a mess, right? We're a hot mess that God can just go, I am so done with you, but he doesn't. And he just pours out his love and his mercy and his grace and he corrects us and disciplines us and leads us so that we can be shaped and transformed to be useful to him and his kingdom and his glory. And so this is a great verse for us as a heart connect. And as you're turning there in your Bible or your Bible app, I want to just give a little background for those of you who might be unfamiliar with this book or just need a reminder. So we're in Isaiah 61. Isaiah was a prophet of God, which means he was given the ability and the authority to speak on God's behalf. And so God would give these prophets visions and downloads that he wanted them to capture and then take specifically to the people of Israel, to the Hebrew people. And sometimes those were messages of warning. Sometimes they were messages of comfort, depending on the need at the time. And so Isaiah was one of these prophets, and he lived and prophesied in the 8th century B.C. And the portion we're looking at today was a message that he was giving to the Jewish people through Isaiah, who were currently at the time captives in Babylon. Years before, King Nebuchadnezzar had come into Jerusalem, taken them to Babylon. They were captive. They destroyed Jerusalem. And now God is speaking to these people to give them hope. But the beauty of God's word is that as he's giving a message to them for that time, simultaneously he's giving us a message as well that we can apply to our lives. And some of the things that Isaiah speaks to have already transpired for us, but they were the future for them. And some of the things Isaiah is talking about um, are actually future coming still. And so it's just a, a fascinating book. So let's begin with Isaiah chapter 6. Let's start with verse 1. 
I'm just going to read through these four verses, stopping and starting at different points and unpacking some things. Verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord, that's a reference to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. We have to stop right here and go, who is this me? Who's this person that's being referenced? Is it Isaiah? Well, sure, Isaiah is definitely giving good news, but at this point in time, he is speaking and writing uh, on behalf of someone who has yet to come. This is a prophetic speaking of a unique servant of God, unlike any other that will show up in the future. And the key for us to know who this is, is found in the word anointed. Look again, it says, the Lord has anointed me. Now that word in the original language in the Bible is the Hebrew word meshech. And what it means, it means to consecrate or to set apart and uh, to be determined for a certain purpose. And that word is the root word of the word um, mashiach, which is the Hebrew word for anointed one or chosen one. And some of you are going, okay, I'm trying to track. So we have Mashiach, this Hebrew word that's translated from this chosen one, this anointed one. When you go to the Greek, the Greek word, when they translate the Hebrew, is the word Christos, which is where we get the English word what? Christ. So who's being talked about right here? It's Christ. All the way back in Isaiah. I love how God does that. I mean, you go all the way back to Genesis, and you see these glimpses, these predictions of Jesus, who is going to come later. And so this is Jesus the Christ. Now, for those of you who, and and we could probably raise hands, and most of us would probably raise our hands at this point, that thought at one point that Christ was the last name of Jesus, that's not accurate. It's not first name Jesus, last name Christ, all right? It's actually a title. Christ means anointed one, right? The chosen one. So technically, it's Jesus the Christ. And in the Hebrew, it would be Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ, the anointed one. That's who is the me right here. And so Isaiah is pointing this arrow, you know, big arrow, aiming in the future to one who is to come, that we can look back and go, oh, it was Jesus. And even if that wasn't enough, we see something fascinating that Jesus did when he came on the scene 700 years later. So fast forward 700 years, Jesus is now a young adult man. And he's launching his ministry, and as usual, he goes into cities, and he would go into a synagogue, and sometimes he would teach or preach. And of course, they didn't have the Bibles like we have. They definitely didn't have Bible apps. I just want you to know that back in the Bible days. Um, But they had everything on scrolls. And so look what Jesus does. You can look on the screen, and you can go in your Bible if you feel like you're super fast. But Luke 4 says that he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. This was his hometown where he was raised. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, this is the Jewish house of worship, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet, who? Isaiah, huh, interesting, was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place, that means he's looking for it, where it was written, and then he read, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And all the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Do you see what just happened? Jesus rolled into his hometown. I'm going to go to church. Hey, give me the Bible, okay? He's given the Bible, book of Isaiah. He looks for the passage, finds it, says it, and then he says, oh, by the way, I'm this person. I'm the me you're looking for. Well, of course, if you fast forward, you know the rest of the story. They freak out and want to kill him. But, um, you know, God, of course, protects him because he's got a mission to fulfill. And so there's a fascinating moment where Jesus is going, I'm this one. I'm the anointed one. I'm the chosen. I'm the Messiah that you've been waiting for. And of course, then you look at his life and you look at his miraculous birth. You look at his sinless life because he was both 100% man, 100% God. So he was man that he could relate to us, but he was God who could not sin ever, fused into one. And we look at his death on the cross. We look at his life of miraculous healings that he taught, his death on the cross, his resurrection. He backed 
up. He validated who he was as the chosen one, as the Messiah. And so this is very important for us to understand on the front end because this is who our Savior is. But now let's look a little closer at what he does. Let's look at the mission or the handiwork of our restore, of our Savior. Continue again. Let's look at one, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And when you look at the handiwork, the mission of Jesus, of the Messiah, we see here Jesus restores, Jesus transforms, Jesus repairs, Jesus brings beauty from ashes, he gives new life. Now, before we depart from here, I want to just kind of dig in a little deeper because what we see here is this contrast of what happens with the result of sin, our departure and defiance against God, and how Jesus came to counter it and to repair or restore it. So let's look at what we see here. First, we see poverty. Now, now you have to understand, these things that we're about to see, this is, this is the fruit that mankind harvests from the seeds of rebellion that we plant and then water with our self-reliance and disobedience to God. This is what happens to us when we say, God, get out of my life. And so first we see poverty, not just literal poverty, not just a monetary or resource uh, diminishment. We're talking about deeper poverty, spiritual poverty, great need. So these are people that are unable to help themselves. They're afflicted. They're worn out. They're beat down. They're needy. And they're people who recognize that they have a need and they need someone to help them. And so Jesus comes and he says, you know what I'm going to bring you? I'm going to bring you what you need most. You need good news. You don't need money. You, don't need, you need to know there's a way out. I believe that there's some people in here, people online listening, going, there is stuff going on in my life. I probably need a way out. Jesus is, or Jesus was, if you're a follower of Christ, that way out. And so he brings us good news, a message of hope, a message of victory for those who know they need someone bigger than their situation. And of course, the ultimate good news that Jesus brings is the gospel that his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave would be the victory over sin and death. There is no better news. It says he brought good news to the poor. We are the poor. We are spiritually bankrupt on our own, broken, nothing to bring. So there's no better news than that God took care of that problem on our behalf. And so his death and resurrection has brought this good news. And so we see this poverty, but Jesus comes and says, I will bring you good news. We see brokenheartedness. This is not just, hey, I've had a bad day. This is not just, oh, my boyfriend or girlfriend broke up with me. Those can break your heart, no doubt, but this is deeper. This is a deeper spiritual brokenheartedness, a realization that I'm far from God. In fact, I feel far from God. Does God even know what I'm going through? Does he even care? And then you even dig even deeper into this brokenheartedness and you start to go, what have I done? What have, look what I've done. I've pushed God away. I've pushed my family away. I've broken things. And all of a sudden you're just heart broke in this place of despair. And you're, you're needing um, healing because you're deeply wounded. And Jesus comes and he brings the healing. He binds up and bandages the wounds of your heart saying, no, I do care, and I do know, and I will deal with this. And Jesus does say, I can give forgiveness. And so he heals your soul. I want you to think about the losses in your life. Job losses, friends and family that you've lost, whatever it is, all losses are swallowed up when you gain Christ. Gaining Christ surpasses all losses. Because if you lose Christ, you lose everything body, mind, soul. But we know we have to endure losses in this life that, that hurt our hearts. But Christ comes to bring healing and comfort to those moments. Charles Spurgeon, a well-respected preacher in the 1800s, said this, he deigns to handle and heal broken hearts. He himself lays on the ointment of grace and the soft bandages of love and thus binds up the bleeding wounds of those convinced of sin. That's our Jesus. That's our Jesus. That's the Savior. That's the anointed one. That's the Messiah. We also see captivity. 
The Jews being spoken to here were slaves to the Babylonians, right, at this time. But we know that because of sin, we're enslaved. We're enslaved, especially without Christ. We're enslaved to our fears. We're enslaved to our addictions, our attitudes, our bad habits, our behaviors. We're enslaved to certain beliefs. We're enslaved to certain lies that we tell ourselves. Some of you are sitting here, you're enslaved by unforgiveness. What happens is, when you're a slave, when you're a captive, it means you are under the mastery of someone else. You are under the mastery of something else. And Jesus is saying, you're a slave, but I've come to set you free. I've come to unshackle you from your wicked taskmaster. I've come to open the door of the cell that you are in. And so he brings freedom and he liberates us from those oppressions and addictions and fear and those wicked taskmasters in our life. This is Jesus, the one who frees. And what's happening is some of you are thinking, well, I still have certain issues in my life I don't feel free of. Don't forget that on this planet, on this earth, the freedom that we have in Christ often is the foretaste of what will be completely and perfectly ours on the other side. And when heaven comes, when Jesus comes, we'll have complete freedom, ultimate freedom. But now it's a spirit of freedom. And there's a spirit of joy and release that he offers those who come to him. And what's interesting is you're reading through Isaiah 61. This is sounding good. Man, he brings good news to the poor. He, he brings you know, uh, healing to the brokenhearted. He's going to let loose the, the captives. And then you run into this next section and you kind of go like, say what? Because it says that Jesus is coming to bring a day of favor, but also a day of wrath, of vengeance. It's kind of like a speed bump. You're like, wait, what's that mean? This again is the fruit of man's rebellion and sin. That God is, this is a, a thought that should give you great celebration if you're in Christ and should terrify you if you're not in Christ. God is storing. He's storing his wrath for man. He is storing a day of vengeance. There will be a day when God gives his undiluted, fully vented wrath upon the disobedient creatures who said, God, I won't believe in you. God, get your hands off my life. I'm not going to believe in the God as he's revealed himself. It's too harsh. I don't like this, like that. I'm going to customize God. I'm going to create a God of my own liking, my own preferences that's more comfortable for me. I'm going to tame him down. I'm going to dumb him down. All people who do that to God are storing up wrath on this day of vengeance. And this day of vengeance is aimed at mankind. And every day is one day less before that day comes. This is a reality. This is biblical truth to us. And so we look at that, and here's what happens. Jesus has made available to all of us who are targets of God's wrath a day of favor, a year of favor. And this is interesting because this is a reference to the Hebrew day of jubilee. And then the Old Testament law with the Hebrew rhythm, every 50 years, they would have a day of jubilee. And what that meant was all debts were considered paid. If someone took your land and took your possessions to pay off debt, they gave it back to you. If someone took your children or you to go work as a slave until you could pay your debt, you got freed. It was a day of freedom, of release, of debt being paid. And it says that Jesus has brought this day of jubilee. Some of you are going like, hey, can we vote that in to government? I've got some student loan debts, you know. When's this jubilee thing happening? You know, mortgage. Can you imagine? No mortgage payment, no loan debt, no car debt, whatever credit card you debt, done, gone. And here's what's crazy. Like we can wrap our minds around that concept and go, that would be really cool. But we can't wrap our minds around or we forget the power of the fact that Jesus did so much more than that. He paid a debt we could never pay. We owe God. We are sinful, defiant creatures that through our sin and disobedience, oh God, the punishment deserved to us. And Jesus says, but I have provided a detour. I've provided a way out if you will receive it. And if you've never fully understood, if you're a guest or you're new to church or you're new in your spiritual search and you've never really fully understood the cross, this is that moment where you wait. That's what that means? Yes, when Jesus Christ fully God, fully man, died on the cross. That was the payment. That was the red stamp paid in full for your debt of sin that you owe God. And then three days later, when Jesus rose from the grave, that was his victory dance over sin, his victory dance over death, to say, now those who believe in me, <laughs> debt is paid. 
walk in freedom. This is this day of jubilee, this year of jubilee that Jesus brings us, this restoration. And then, of course, we see mourning. These are heavy words that we're seeing, the product of our life without God. Mourning, grief, despair, heaviness. And he ties into the the culture here saying, I'll trade your ashes for a headdress and give you oil of gladness. And we're tying into the customs now. And a lot of you know this, but for those of you who might not, if you were in deep grief, if someone you love died, Something terrible happened in your life. The custom at the time is you would take off, you know, your comfortable clothes and you would put on itchy, burlappy sackcloth. And then you would find an ash pile. You'd burn some stuff and then you would take the ashes and just spread them on your head and spread them on your body. You were just an itchy mess. And it was a physical representation that you were a mess on the inside, that you're grieving, deep grief. And at the same time, we have this other side where if you were to go to a wedding or if you were to go to a festification or a party, when you would walk in the door, they would start pouring oil on you. Some of you, it's like, do that to your guests next time just to see what happens. <laughs> this is a party. This is, you stink. Let's likely know this. Let's, let's get you to smell better, you know? And they would, they would sprinkle oil and pour oil on you because of, it was gladness. And, and you have bright clothing, garments that would represent the cheerfulness of the occasion. And, and what's happening here is God's saying, I'm sending my servant. I'm sending my anointed one. I'm sending this chosen one to come. And he's going to trade your ashes for this oil of gladness. He's going to take off the ashes. And he's going to put a crown, a tiara on your head. When I was studying this, reading through this, I couldn't think about our night to shine recently. I think about some of our community and those that struggle with disability, special needs, or, or families, like there's an extra heaviness. There's extra challenges that have to be endured in life. And sometimes I bet those days feel heavier. I've heard that from some of our friends in that community. They go, sometimes those days feel heavier. Now look at the night to shine. And I remember every single one of those guests got a crown. Every single guest got a crown. And I just started looking at picture after picture after picture after picture of boys and girls walking down this red carpet right here, big old smiles with a tiara or a crown, feeling like, I'm a king right now. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a queen right now. And then just big smiles. I'm going, that's such a beautiful picture, but it still diminishes to what Christ is doing for us. Christ is saying, I'm giving you a crown. I'm giving you a tiara. I'm giving you a headdress. I'm giving you gladness instead of mourning. Who would want to reject that? But we fool ourselves to do so. This is Jesus. This is who he is. And this is what he does. But then we see something interesting now that we've identified who this is and what he does. All of a sudden we have a pronoun change in Isaiah 61. Because it was me, me, me. These are the things that this one will do. And all of a sudden we go from me to they. And we go from first person to third person. Look at Isaiah 61.3. That they, he did all these things. Why? That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Do you see what just happened? The poor who received the good news, the brokenhearted that were healed, the captives that were set free, those who were under wrath, who now were experiencing jubilee, those who were in mourning, but now are experiencing gladness. What happened? God changed them, and now they are a planting of the Lord. Their identity has been changed. Their purpose has been changed. And what God's doing here is he's doing a phenomenal thing. He's reaching back to something he said through Isaiah in chapter 1. Because in Isaiah chapter 1, speaking of the rebel, Speaking of those who've rejected the Lord, in verse 30, God says, For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. Sounds lovely, right? Saying if you're going to reject God, if you're going to try to do it on your own, your tree, your oak tree is going to be weak, it's going to be fruitless, and it's going to be dying, it's going to be parched. But for those who receive this one, And the news and the work that he brings, they're going to become oaks of righteousness. Not our righteousness. We don't bring righteousness. We have nothing to bring. It's righteousness that God gives us and applies to us out of his grace. And these trees are going to be planted as oaks of righteousness. Why? For his glory. For his glory. I don't know if you fully understand this yet. And even if you do, maybe you've drifted and forgotten. Maybe you can take... Today can be kind of a a jump back to true north for you. But why do you live? Why are you alive? Your job, your house, your car, your clothes, your family, everything you have, 
Why does God even allow you to have that? It says right there, for what? His glory. For his credit. You're alive and breathing today to glorify God. You know what's so cool? There's no one like you. There's no one like you. There's no fingerprint like yours. There's no DNA. You are unique. And you can uniquely glorify God with how God made you. With your gifts and your talents and your abilities and guess what else? And your struggles. The heavy things. You know why God allows us heavy things in your life? So that you can glorify him through those things too. Our lives are to glorify God. And so these people become this planting of God, these trees that are strong and fruitful and sturdy, full of God's righteousness, planted by God, not planted by themselves. And it's just this big beacon that says, God did this. God did this work. God's amazing. God gets the credit. God gets the glory. And so here's what the Redeemer does to the redeemed. Here's what the Restore does to those who've been restored. And then what do they end up doing once this is a reality? Look at verse 4. And they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. The restored start to get busy restoring. They do what was done to them. Guys, this is where we fall short sometimes. Like, what God has done for us, are we passing it on? Are we this conduit of God's grace and joy? and Just the things that God's done in us, are we passing it on? This is what God's called us to do. And so we see this picture of this restoration. Of course, for the time for them, it was the Jews, when they were released, they went back to a burned down, broke down Jerusalem and rebuilt it. But for us, it's the church. The, the church global is the manifestation of Christ on earth. People empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to do the work of God. And we do what he does and he restores. So we restore with his glory in mind. I love this image. I love this image of this image of trees planted by God, fruitful and strong to glorify Him. Now, I was raised in an area, Central Valley, California. We've got tons of oak trees. Some of them were in groves right next to each other, creating small environments. You see that here in our metro parks, all the groves of trees that are together, that are lush, and they draw people and draw critters for you know, nourish, nourishment to, to, be, uh, to experience vitality. But there were also a lot of trees by themselves, just hills with a lone oak tree, cool looking, but kind of lonely, you know? And when you look at this image of these trees, God's not planting these trees by themselves to be this isolated tree on its own. It's really more of that grove concept because Israel was together. They went back together and did this. The church is together. We're to go and do the work of God together. And so I love this image because when I think about you being missionaries, I'm like, you probably have people within a mile or two that love Jesus just like you do, that are trying to share their faith like you are. There are probably other people, like if you're being a lifehouse, or if you have new life in Christ, that's going to flow out to your neighbors, and you look at your immediate neighbors and go, God's put them next to me on purpose, he's put me next to them on purpose, so I'm going to love on them, pray for them, share with them, meet their needs, and when God opens doors, I'm going to be faithful to talk about my Jesus, and how much I love him, and why I love him. If you're truly going to do that, it's like there's groves of all these fruit-bearing strong trees all over Northeast Ohio doing that. Life groups meeting all over the region, growing together, learning together, praying together, serving together. I love this concept like groves spread out all over Northeast Ohio. Plantings of the Lord, fruitful, strong, full of his righteousness for his glory. I love that imagery. I'm so grateful that so many of you get that. And you've rallied around that. Thank you for that. That's what we're about. But if we want this imagery to be true of us as a body of Christ, and we want it to have a long, fruitful shelf life, then we need to look at ourselves closely to see if we're on track. And this is where I just want to take a second to look back for the last seven weeks. Last seven weeks when we looked at the first few chapters of the book of Revelation, where the resurrected Jesus brought the apostle John in a vision to heaven. And he had him pen seven letters to seven specific churches in Asia Minor. And in these letters, he had affirmations and criticisms for these churches. He had places where he gave them, as our founding pastor Rick says, a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And so as I look at that, I'm going, okay, we just got done teaching on that for seven weeks. We want to be this fruitful tree, you know, rooted for the Lord, being fruitful and strong, if Jesus will look at us and trim us, 
prune us so that we can produce more, if he were to give us affirmations and criticisms, if he were to give us thumbs up, thumbs down, what do we think he would say? And so working with our leadership and just with what God has been showing me over the last few months, I put together basically three celebrations and three things I think we need to recalibrate and work harder on based on what uh, we sense and see. And so these are things I think Jesus would probably celebrate with us and affirm in us. And so here's where I think we can get a thumbs up as church. First, dedication to biblical truth. We're a Bible teaching church. If you come to CVC, you're not going to get 30, 40 minutes of a personal opinion, of a bunch of fluff, some empty religious ritual. We are going to open the Bible because we love the Bible. We believe the Bible. We teach the Bible. We receive the Bible. The truth is in the Bible. And so there's nothing else worth teaching or that we got any business teaching. And although we might try to apply it and be creative and stuff like that, the roots are of God's word. And so I think, I think the Lord will look at us and go, you're rooted in my word. Good job. I affirm this in you. Way to go. Thumbs up. Secondly, I think he would affirm this. I think he would affirm our demonstrated generosity. You are a generous church. I look at our, our annual budget, and when we hit that thing, I think, every year, sometimes we have extra that we can put back into ministry or actually send out and bless other people who need help. And so we're, we're on target. I've, I've co- of course, thought about our, our Unleash campaign. If you're new, you're like, what's that? Uh, we basically said we feel God wants us to raise $2 million in two years so that we can reach our neighbors better, the nations better, and the next generation better. And so we're translating a Bible. We're trying to pay off our mortgage debt. We started with $1.5 million in mortgage debt when we started this thing. And uh, we want to free up those funds to put back into the ministry so we can especially channel more toward next generation ministries, reaching our kids and teens and, and young adults. And so I firmly believe that God wants us and will provide for us to raise more than $2 million in less than two years. This is just a demonstration of the generosity of our church. We launched this thing five months ago. We already have 124% committed, 2.4 committed, but right around now we have just about 1.2 million and 78,000 given. We already have enhanced uh, the 63% of our two-year goal in five months, which is just phenomenal. And on top of that, our mortgage debt as of last week was down to $343,000 from 1.5. This is, this is, that's just praise to God. And so we celebrate these things. This is a generous church. And I hear about you in the community, by the way. I hear how awesome you are. How you help people that need help. And you give out of your pocket. Like you're just generous. You just bless other people. Meals and serving and helping and helping people. Like this is a generous church. And I think Jesus would be so pleased with how generous we are. I think also, thirdly, and this is just top three, I'm sure there's other areas, but I think another strong area that we would get affirmation is our devotion to missions. Since the inception of our church with the founding pastor, Rick Duncan, we know that God was not just calling us to our neighborhood, but his big work around the world. And so we've always had a heart for what God's doing around the world, not just here close by. And so whether it's Louisiana, New York, or West Virginia going down and doing um, disaster relief and sharing the gospel down there, or the times that we're involved in church planting or evangelism or unreached people groups or other ministry to Indonesia, Africa, Ukraine, El Salvador, like we have a heart for what God's doing around the world. And so I think our dedication to make sure that it's not just about Cleveland or, you know, this, you know, Broadview Heights, Bedfield and the surrounding towns, but it's about what God's doing around the world. I think Jesus would affirm us and give us a thumbs up in these areas. So those are celebrations for us. But what are our recalibrations? What are areas that if we're going to peel back and try to honestly assess and evaluate, we think Jesus might say, I'm going to give you a little criticism in here. I might even give you a thumbs down. And so here's three areas that I think myself and our leadership have been praying and thinking about. And here's one area that we can recalibrate. Disproportionate engagement. This is serving. There's a very common statistic out there that about 20% of the churches do the work while the other 80% watch. And I don't think we're that far from that. We probably have 20 to 25% of our body actually serving, leading life groups, serving with student ministry, uh, helping with the ministries around here, as well as going on mission actually getting a passport or getting in a car and driving somewhere outside of the area to just be the hands and feet and mouth of Jesus. And so we just look at that statistic and go, that's not a healthy statistic. We need more people because it stunts our growth and it stunts our impact as a church. Imagine if you woke up this morning and only 20% of your body worked. Some of you are thinking, that's exactly what happened. (laughs) 
But like right now, if I just press a button and 80% of your body just shut off, like how would that feel? Like you could get by, things could happen, but you're limited. I'm going, I, I think we're limited. I think, I think God could use us to do even more. And so we need to see higher engagement. Some of you were here uh, months ago when I shared a story of a family in the Midwest. In 1988, they had a barn. It was down on a lower platform. It was getting flooded on a regular basis. They were tired of it. They wanted to move it. They didn't have the money. And so they came up with this crazy idea. They measured the whole thing. They weighed it out. They figured out, hey, if we get like 350 people or so to pick this thing up, we could actually move it. And that's exactly what they did. They outfitted this barn with bars and handles. 344 people showed up. They all simultaneously picked up a 10,000-pound barn, and they walked it 115 feet uphill to a new spot and set it down. That's crazy. What if only 20% did the work? You got 68 people going, all right, here we go, lift. <laughs> that thing's not even coming off the ground. You need everybody to pick up and, and, and carry something. And so if you call CVC home, this is time. Like, don't be a, a consumer, be a contributor. Like, come, you've got gifts, you've got talents, you've got abilities, like, plug in. One of the best ways to do that is just go to the website. There's a get involved link. There's a serve component there. You'll find two links. One, opportunities to serve inside the church. Find something that you feel drawn to that maybe God's gifted you in or you want to, you know, be a help at, you've always had a heart for, and, and getting plugged in. Or on mission, I, we want you doing both, inside and outside the walls. Find a mission trip. In the next year, commit. In the next two years, I'm going to go on mission. I'm going to get out there, out of my comfort zone, clear the calendar. I'm going to give God a week of my vacation or whatever it is and get out there and serve the Lord. We have disproportionate engagement. And I think the Lord wants to see us improve that. Secondly, minimal urgency for souls. I think the Lord would give us a criticism with urgency for souls. If you're a Christian, you call yourself a Christian, you believe the Bible, then here's what you believe. There's a God, there's a devil, there's a heaven, there's a hell. Those who know Jesus will go to heaven. Those who don't know Jesus will go to hell. The problem is, I don't think we really live like that. If you were walking by a, a building that was on fire, and you saw people in there burning, and you're like, man, I really care about those people in there, but you actually never ran in to help them, then there's no urgency to help. And what I think is, I think our church values, I think we value souls. Like, we pray for people who don't know Christ, and, and, we, and we have a heart tug about those who don't know Christ and what they're missing out on and their eternal security. We have a value for that. I just don't think we have the urgency. If Jesus Christ came back today, how many of your friends, loved ones, family members, neighbors would go to hell? How many of you have been working next to people for years that will go to hell if Jesus comes back or if they die? Your neighbors? Like we know it and we value it, but our urgency doesn't line up with the value that we profess. This is especially dear to my heart right now. I want to share something with you that I've been wrestling with for over a year now. I want to show you a graph. This graph charts our responses to the gospel, decisions for Christ, if you will, and our baptism from the last three years. I don't know about you, but when I see that, I'm going, oh no, not on our watch. Last year was probably the lowest response to the gospel and lowest year of baptisms we've had in who knows when. Maybe ever. And yes, we can unpack the culture and the dynamics and less people are going to church, all this kind of stuff. I just believe God's bigger than that stuff. And I'm just going, That's, is that what God's called us to? Is this going to be, are, are we okay with this? We need to say, no, this, this is unacceptable to us. And so whether it's inviting more people to church, starting to have those conversations, and helping people walk closer to Christ, we've got to see that flip around. This is what God's called us to be. And on that note, you know, this, over the last year, I've been spending some time with the Lord, just looking at, like, we celebrated 30 years. We've got, you know, what, what does God want us to do in the next 10 years? And this is what came up, and our leadership's affirmed this. And so what we're looking to do in the next 10 years is we're looking for 1,000 stories of new life in Christ captured through baptisms. In the next 10 years, 1,000 people, brand new believers in Christ that come to know Jesus and love him so much, they can't wait to get in the water and go public with their faith for Christ. 1,000 stories. And some of you might look at that number and go, man, that's a lot. I think God looks at that number and goes, that's all you want? That's all you want? Well, we'll start somewhere, Lord, but hey, you can do whatever you want. And so we need to start praying and learning how to share our faith and be more bold and caring. Don't be weird about it. We're starting to have more urgency to share our faith. 
the last area is the area that stirred me most from that. I think an area that the Lord would have some criticism and some thumbs down on this would be this, mediocre God dependence. Our God dependence and our hunger for God and our closeness to God is best seen in our prayer life. In our prayer life. And we are a church that prays, no doubt. But could we accurately call ourselves a praying church? A community where the majority of us understand prayer and engage in prayer. A church that quickly goes to prayer and lingers in prayer, where prayer is a joyful reflex for us individually and as a community. That prayer is a first response, not a last resort. That, there's, that prayer is not reserved for just a one-minute formality before a meeting or before a meal. But that we, we learn how to pray better and deeper and longer, all these things. And so when I saw what was happening with our responses to the gospel and decisions for Christ and baptisms, the temptation for us as church leaders is to go, you know what, we need to work harder, we need to do more, we need to find clever ways to connect with people. And as I just started kind of trending that way, because that's very common, it's like the Lord's going, whoa, whoa, hey, back over here, just look at me. You don't save, I do. So if people are going to get saved, you've got to flood my throne room with your prayers. Only God changes hearts. Only Jesus saves. And so if we want more people to come to Christ, we've got to hit our knees and just start praying more. We've got to be a more prayerful church and depend on him even more than we do. Christian author and pastor R.A. Torrey from the 1800s said this, the poverty and powerlessness of the average Christian is neglect of prayer. Some of us in this room are not experiencing the power of God in our lives because we neglect prayer. Here we are called to be this a tree planted on God for his glory. It's hard to live for God's glory when you aren't spending time with him. It's hard to accomplish things for the Lord if you're not spending time with him. It's hard to really have fruitful work for God if you're not spending time with him. And so whether it's an individual, a life group, our leadership, we, we need to elevate our times and prayers. I just want to encourage you, it's already happening. This isn't new. It's not like, hey, starting today, like for months now, I'm praying more and I need to pray more. I'll go first one to tell you, my personal prayer life, my family prayer life, my pastoral prayer life needs to seriously ratchet up. But it's in motion right now. Your elders, your staff here at this church are praying more. Life group leaders, I hear you're starting to pray more in your life groups. That's what we're talking about. More prayer, deeper prayer, longer prayer. You know, this last week, one of the most admired and influential men of our time went home to be with the Lord. Billy Graham. Man. And we look at him, and what, what a humble guy, what a warm guy, what a friendly guy, what an inspirational guy. He, but he's still this like spiritual giant in our eyes. And praise God for the Billy Grahams of this earth. And some of you look at Billy Graham and go like, well, I know Billy Graham. Don't forget, but you might be the Billy Graham for that one person in your home, that one person in your office, that one person in your neighborhood. So we can't dismiss that. But take a guy like Billy Graham, who's so influential. And in 2010, a news interviewer was asking him questions, and he was asked what he would do different if he were to go back and do his life different. Look what he says. He says, if I had to do it over again, I'd spend more time in meditation and what? Prayer. And telling the Lord how much I love him and adore him and look forward to the time we are going to spend together for eternity, which is where he's at now. Billy Graham wishes he would have prayed more. I think we're in good company when it comes to like not being happy with our prayer life, right? I mean, I don't think we're ever going to come to a place when someone says, like, hey, how's your prayer life going? And you go, oh, I'm crushing it, man. <laughs> I'm crushing it in my prayer life. In fact, this may be what heaven's like. I'm that, I'm that good right now in my prayer life. We all know, right? We all are dissatisfied on some level with either the things that would change if we prayed more or the fact that we know we can pray more. We're dissatisfied. Let's change it. Let's become a church that just doesn't have prayer and we have good prayer, but let's really become that praying church. Let's go to the throne room of God for the souls of people. Let's dive deeper in our prayer life. So for this year, and we're not doing it just for this year, but starting this year, we're just going to start elevating, emphasizing prayer more as a church. Just trusting God to do what he does and just be faithful to do what he's called us to do. 
Now, every day you have opportunity for prayer. Find ways to dial that up. We try to encourage you guys to talk to the Lord. Um, also, we've given you a book this year that we recommend, The Valley of Vision, just to look at the Puritans prayed. They're just very deep and connected to God, just to kind of spark deeper prayer. But here's a few other ways that we want to encourage you to start dialing up your prayer life in the upcoming opportunities. One is this. Starting next week, we're, just, we're going to launch a four-week series on prayer. Like, let's, let's unpack this together. I was talking to a lady after the last service. She goes, I just don't know how to pray. And some of you feel the same way. Like, I don't know how to pray. So the next four weeks, we're going to look at some of the big questions about prayer. Like, what really is prayer? How do I do it? Who am I talking to? Because if you know who you're talking to, that changes your conversation already. And why pray? Why does it matter? What happens when I pray? We're going to look at those four questions and really unpack them over the next month. Learning to pray more and pray better for the glory of God. So we've got these cards out there in the foyer. They're a it's about the prayer series. You can invite someone who might be interested, but it's also a good reminder for you put up somewhere to be more prayerful in your life. So that series, the next four weeks, um, don't miss a Sunday. Just come. Also, to help you grow in your prayer, I'd mark your calendar right now, March 12th through the 16th. Clear it. We have our annual Seek Week. It's just every evening in the after, uh, through the week, we, we pray. We're going to be in here just, just praying. Some of those prayers are individual. Some of those prayers are in small groups or as a group together, but we're just growing in prayer. Be at Seek Week. Clear the calendar. Make that a priority in your life. Also, combining the urgency for those who don't know Christ with prayer, uh, you've been given a couple of these cards. You'll notice on one side, it's just, you know, it says prayer. On the other side, it's five slots for five names. It's time to refresh. Who are we praying for? Who do you know? Who do you live next to? Who do you work with? Who are you in a relationship with that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus? They don't know the Lord. Would you write their names down? Just five of those names? Just the first name. You don't need the last name. Just the first name. And take one for you and put it somewhere visible and important so you can remember to start praying for those people all the time. The other one, turn in the offering baskets that are going to come by in a little bit. We'll just, you know, over the next couple weeks, just keep dropping those in there. And we're going to take those and put them on the wall in the prayer room. I hope all of you have been to the prayer room. I've got a room down this hall. Every service, there's people in there praying. Go join them. Pray for the service. Pray for what God's doing. There's going to be names and prayer requests on the wall. Just go in there and say, you know, before I leave here, I'm going to duck into the prayer room for 10 minutes. I'm going to pray for three things. I hope all of you go visit the prayer room. But put those names out. There's one of the ways you can pray. You know, uh, our pastors over the last seven weeks did a great job taking the big messages, the big ideas from those seven weeks in the Revelation um, Recalibrate series. They, they, they built the prayer for each of those weeks. Just a great way to stay on track trying to be this tree. <laughs> I want to add one to it. You can write it in or just lock, lock it in. Here's a prayer I'm asking you guys to join me in. Father, help us spend more time with you to give more glory to you. Help me spend more time with you, what we're supposed to do, to, to get more glory for you, what God's called to do with our life. So would you add that to your regular prayers as we grow in prayer? feels appropriate that right now, before we totally wrap everything up, we just have some time in prayer. I'm going to invite you just into this moment of prayer. You can close your head. Uh, close your head. That'd be really hard. <laughs> Please don't do that. You can close your eyes or bow your head if you want to. You don't have to do that. That's not necessary. God still hears you if your eyes are open, if you're looking up. But if it helps you focus, bow your head, close your eyes. I'm just going to give you a minute to talk to the Lord. What do you need to thank him for? What sins do you need to confess? What do you need to plead with him about? What stood out today that's in your heart that you need to talk to him about? Would you just spend a moment talking to the Lord right now? For those of you watching online or even in the room that do not know Christ, and you've been trusting in yourself to be made right with God or religious ritual or something, but not belief and faith and trust in Jesus alone. You can even use Isaiah 61 as a template for how to talk to God. You can just say something like, Lord, I'm poor and broken and sinful, enslaved to my sin. I can't free myself. Today I'm grieved by my sin. I deserve your wrath. But today I place my faith in the anointed one, Jesus Christ. I believe in the good news that you died and rose again to bring me forgiveness, healing, 
freedom and comfort. I turn to you today as my redeemer, restorer and savior. Take my life, plant me for your glory and help me live for you. If you're you're turning to Christ today, don't do it in isolation. We've given you a response card in your program to mark on there, I received Christ. Please turn that into the baskets as they come around. Just want to get in touch with you and tell you how you can grow in your relationship with Christ if you're praying and turning to Christ today. Jesus, thank you. We know poverty, but you've brought good news. Thank you. We know what it means to be brokenhearted, but you've brought healing. Thank you. We know what it's like to be enslaved, but you have brought freedom. Thank you. We deserve your vengeance, but you offered us eternal life. You paid our debts. You've given us jubilee. Thank you. We know mourning, but you've brought comfort. Thank you. We know weakness, but you've brought strength. Thank you. Thank you for taking our ashes, our distress, our grief, and giving us beauty, joy, and comfort. Help us be like oak trees, strong and fruitful. You're planting so that we can glorify you as ones who have been restored. May we be about your restoring work during the years you've given us on earth. If it would be pleasing to you, Father, would you let us see 1,000 new people in the next 10 years boldly proclaim their love and faith in you through baptism? Help us, Father, to increase our urgency for reaching those who don't know you. Help us, Father, to prioritize your kingdom work and our participation in your body. And help us, Father, to be a people of prayer, not just people that have prayer. Help us spend more time with you to give more glory to you. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, and we all sit together.